Right now, in your podcast feed on Black Diamonds, hear Curtis Granderson and Bob Kendrick tell the story of the letter that Yankees owner Larry McPhail wrote to New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia in 1945, urging against the desegregation of Major League Baseball. And the pitch is swung on, and there it goes deep right. It is high, it is far, it is gone. It's a grander slam. It's something sort of grandish. I am really excited to welcome to Black Diamond someone who is not a stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and someone who I call personally a friend, and that is former all-star former New York Yankee, New York Met, and a player who had a magnificent career, but also one of the great guys of baseball, Mr. Curtis Granderson. Curtis, welcome to Black Diamonds. Uh, Thank you very much. It is an honor and a privilege anytime I get to be in your presence, even if it's virtual, like we have to do right now. (laughs) Well, it is so good to catch up with you. And I can't thank you enough for utilizing your voice to read the Larry McPhail memorandum to Mayor LaGuardia. As Mayor LaGuardia was really starting to push this agenda for the integration of our game. So I guess my first question is, what was your reaction to the letter. Were you aware of this letter before we sent it to you uh, for this episode, or was that your first introduction to the letter? That, that was my first introduction. And when I looked at the letter, first thing popped out, I saw LaGuardia, and I'm thinking of the airport. And I go, wow, like, so now I have perspective of the time frame of this letter. Because when, when you hand me something, I, I, I see it in my present terms. And now I go, oh, that's where the name came from for the airport. So this is during that time. So now my mind is shifting back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, trying to understand, okay, what is going to be in this letter before (laughs) I get to read it? And then I start to read it, and and I I still didn't know. I, I was unaware of this. I didn't even know at the time it was for the the New York Yankees ball club at that time, even though I read that note that said, this is the president of American League Baseball Club of New York. It didn't register that this was the Yankees of New York. So all that was kind of shock value, even before I got to the first paragraph. And now all of a sudden I read through the entire thing and I was just, um, the first word was wow, with a lot of exclamation marks, you know, three, four, (laughs) and five, for a number of reasons, which I hope we get a chance to go into here. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, that was my reaction when we caught wind that the letter had surfaced for auction. And it's challenging for us to go out and acquire pieces. We've, as I've talked to you before, we've almost become our own worst enemy. The more we popularize this story, we're driving up the price of those rare artifacts, which make it really difficult for us to go out and compete to get them because most of the stuff is ending up in the hands of private collectors who this is their business. But it's, you know, it's the byproduct of what we have to do. If, if that's so be it, if, if that's what it requires, you know, that we can't compete, we still need to make sure that people, as many people as possible, understand what these leagues truly were all about. But man, I got to tell you, when, when that letter surfaced 
And I got to peruse through the content of that letter. I knew that we had to have it. And, and I told our curator, Dr. Raymond Doswell, and, you know, the, I, as I mentioned on this show, it's hard to be a competitor when you don't have a whole lot of money. And, and, and so, but the competitive juices started to flow. And as Ray was submitting bids and there was, uh, apparently there was one other individual or someone competing against us. And we're going back and forth. And, and so now the competitive juices are really flowing. And Ray was sending me a note, says, well, what do you think about this? I said, go ahead, let's go do it. And we finally got it. Now, again, I don't know if we've ever paid it off yet, but we got it. <laughs> <laughs> we have it in our possession because that single letter, I think, paints a tremendous picture of what the obstacle was as it related to Black athletes in general, the Negro League specifically, and this opportunity to integrate the game. And that's why we knew we needed to have that. It's just a simple document. But man, there's a lot within the confines of that simple document. It's, it's amazing. And you mentioned just the, the interest of people wanting to have these artifacts from that time frame. And you can't knock those, those that you know, have the financial means to bid for these things, to collect these things, to have them. But you hope when, when you see and, and you read and you watch and you get a chance to share it with someone close to you, that you would want to share this with everybody else. And what better partner to share it with than the Negro Leagues? Even if you own it, if I say, Mr. Bob Kendricks, I have this. I would love for you to put it on display. I would love for you to have it for this time frame. I would love for you to be a part of it. It could still be mine, but I want you to have it because you can spread the word to so many individuals on a story you're already telling and it can have so much more impact. So hopefully for the audience out there that are collectors, it still can be yours. It still can. can You're absolutely right. And, yeah. and that's the message that we try to, to deliver that don't leave it isolated where only a few select friends will ever get to see it. When it comes here, where it really rightfully deserves to be, the world gets to enjoy it and learn from it. But this letter, you know, and I've read it multiple times, man. And, you know, what I find so interesting about MacPhail. Because MacPhail, throughout the body of this letter, would actually say some things, Curtis, that made complete sense. Yes. He, he was right in some aspects, but he was just so flawed with his mindset. You know, he just could not get over a mindset that somehow made the black athlete less than what he thought them to be. You know, because again, when he says, if we sign black talent, we're going to put the Negro Leagues out of business. He's absolutely yep. right. That was going to be the byproduct of what would happen. And uh, one particular line for me, where he says, there are few, if any, Negro players who could qualify for play in major leagues at that time or, or could play in the major leagues at that time. 
And a major league player must have something besides natural ability. You know, this whole idea mm-hmm. about character and morals <laughs> and all of this, which we know didn't exist. <laughs> Bob, I- I've watched those old movies, those black and white movies where they depict the, the early years of baseball. And you had fighting and drinking and oh, cussing man. and all oh, this. So, everything. Everything. you know, if that was considered, what, what did he use the word, you know, um, uh, or the aptitude and, you know, professionalism and, and all those words, then, then maybe I missed something back then. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, to, to, to your point, because I've, again, the movies aren't, you know, uh, 100% true. I, I wasn't alive during that time frame. However, a lot of it is based off of stories and, you know, they even lead in or finish up, you know, this is some depiction of the truth at that time, but you don't really see too many people correcting those films and stories from that time frame. So we know that there are players that existed that wouldn't be the person you'd bring home to mom. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's the thing. So, you know, the major leagues had its share of womanizers, carousers, gamblers, all these things that McPhail is trying to uphold as what makes a major leaguer so special, all that stuff was going on in the major league. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Exactly. That's the part I was, that's, 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 that's one of my wows. You know how when you send a text message now, you put the exclamation mark and the more exclamation marks you put really signify. So that's, that's number one. That's the first exclamation mark on the wow that I had after this. Yeah. What Was there anything else in the letter that really struck you that you, when you were reading it, you're like, man, I don't believe this. <laughs> you, you know what? And it goes back to the beginning because this is the president of the organization. So you, I have to assume that there's this person on top and there's people that work alongside him or underneath him. And at least in this day and age, before things are sent to press or words are being spoken, somebody's looking over it or helping you put this together. So whoever was on his team that said, hey, this is good and approved this, we also have to understand what they were thinking too. Maybe they were in a position where, hey, I just can't say anything. You don't question the president of the organization. Or maybe him and the rest of his staff were all on board and thought the same way. Because to your point, there's things that are absolutely true and correct. And there's things that you could take as a positive. The fact that we're breaking records, we're selling out venues, the amount of money these organizations are worth. So you're highlighting that things are working. But then in the next sentence, you're saying that there's flawed, there's issue. So nobody caught that before this got approved to go out. And, and, and to me, that's where, that's where the letter became so interesting because to me, he was hurting his case because he'd go back and forth. So he made no real significant case for why black shouldn't be in. Because this is all just kind of based on his stereotypical depiction of African-American athletes. But then he would almost hurt his cause for the things that you just mentioned. They're selling out venues, you know, and he seemed to just focus more on what it meant to the black fan. But for me, the most telling portion of that letter is when he talks about how much money the New York Yankees made (laughs) from the Negro Leagues. And that's just one year. 
And, and that's the thing that we talk about a lot here. A hundred thousand dollars in 1945. And I don't know what that would be equivalent to under today's economic standards, but you can rest that is a million plus dollars under today's, you know, economic index. And Curtis, they didn't have to work hard to get that money. All they had to do was have the club sign on the dotted line, man. And so it was very clear that the Yankees were in no hurry for integration because they didn't want to lose that source of revenue. And, and, you know, as I oftentimes say, whenever they say it ain't about the money, it's always about the money. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he didn't have to mention that. And I, I, I think that's where he's mentioning it going, okay, not only is this going to affect other clubs, but it's a f- specifically going to affect my club. And this is how it's going to affect my club. And you don't realize what you're saying and going, oh, so the reason you don't want to do it is because uh, one of the reasons you don't want to do it is because of your bottom line. All the revenue that you were receiving by having a Negro League team play. Well, now I have a Negro League player come in that could jeopardize that source of income for me, which again is a positive to the Negro leagues because you wouldn't rent it to somebody that isn't going to fill the space, buy the concessions, have a good time, be a good tenant and thus turn over a profit for you. But of course this group had been doing that for the New York Yankees ball club. And I'm sure many other clubs and what they call, which I didn't know this name, Organized, organized, baseball. organized. I, I thought baseball. that was what we played when I just signed up for T-ball. I didn't know that. <laughs> when I went from playing with my friends to actually getting me a jersey, I thought I was playing organized ball. But I guess organized was the white major leagues at that time, which I didn't that's, know. So I had a that's lesson. A, that's exactly what it was referred to at that time. And the thing that I also make note, and this was something that Buck O'Neill took great pride in. This whole aptitude thing was a farce. Over 40% of the athletes who played in the Negro Leagues had some level of college education in comparison to approximately 5% of those who played in the major leagues at that time. And as Buck would go on to say, it was for the simple reason that the major leagues then didn't want you to go to college. For the very things that he outlined, a seven-year process you know, in the minor league. So they wanted to get you out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then have you work your way to the major leagues. Well, the Negro Leagues didn't have that kind of farm system, so they oftentimes train on the colleges of historically black colleges and universities. I should say they trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities. And Curtis, they would play the black college baseball team. And then they would recruit a great deal of their workforce from those HBCUs, Mm -hmm. which is why they had a disproportionate number of college-educated athletes in comparison to the major leagues. Yet there was still this prevailing mindset that we weren't smart enough to play in the major leagues. And, And I remind people that dialect 
and intellect are not the same. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, and I think people sometimes mistake that. You know, you know, where they grew up, maybe they didn't speak the king's English the way that people wanted them to speak it. But that didn't have anything to do with intellect. It had everything to do with where they came from and how language was presented to them. And, uh, and so there seemed to be this conflict between dialect and intellect. And, and these were very bright men. Jackie Robinson goes to UCLA. Larry Doby had gone to college. Monty Irvin had gone to college. The list just goes on and on. Buck O'Neill goes to Edward Waters College in Jacksonville, Florida, before the lure of professional baseball pulls him away. So trying to overcome that whole stereotypical aspect of the black athlete was a major part of this struggle as well. And so that's why you always hear, heard people say, well, you know, we, we'll sign a black player when we can find the right one. When we can find the right one. That was always the thing. If we can find the right one, and, and of course we know that all of this black talent existed and it was free-flowing there in the Negro Leagues, but MacPhail was just like a lot of others who were really trying to hold on to something that they knew was beneficial to them at by really trying to hold back the black athlete. And another thing he mentions when you talk about the aptitude and the education, so we check those boxes and that's still not enough. You've seen this happen in so many other levels of civil rights, especially during the movement at that time. But then you also have war, military, and he quotes it with the number 54 professional Negro League baseball players served in the armed forces. So you somehow found this number, you've looked it up, you've researched it, and you realize that 54 individuals are capable to serve and defend this country. And that's still not enough. You know, that in addition to all the other different things that he highlights from boxing championships to Olympic championships to football championships. So you've mentioned winners, you've mentioned bravery, you've mentioned heroes, you've mentioned education. <laughs> I, what are we missing here? You know, <laughs> so again, that's that's another wow moment here because somebody has to hear this letter and go, "Hey, I understand what you're trying to say, but maybe don't say that right now. Let's keep that for us because we can still get our point across, whatever his point was, and eliminate some of this because you're to your point, you're you're, you're highlighting the Negro leagues when you're trying to break them down at the same time, and you're just exactly. going back and forth, exactly. And, and, and you have to understand that MacPhail was not happy with, as he would call these drum beaters. And one of those drum beaters was a guy named Lester Rodney, whose voice is being featured in several of these episodes as it relates to the integration of the game. And Curtis, Lester Rodney was a white communist journalist who wrote for the communist newspaper, The Daily Worker. Mm. And Lester Rodney is as influential and impactful as anyone in helping usher in integration. Lester Rodney wrote consistently and constantly about the great stars of the Negro Leagues wow. and then started to question out loud why they weren't in the major leagues when they were better than half of the guys playing. 
in the major leagues. And so white fans start to pick up this same chart. So that's where we talking about the picketing and all mm-hmm. of this stuff going on is that white fans were on the front line questioning baseball now. Wow. And Lester Rodney had the pen. He had a voice. And people were responding to this voice. And again, it goes back to what you had just referenced. Here were young African-American soldiers dying, fighting the exact same racism in another country that we were being asked to accept here at home. And, And all of this plays in the ultimate movement that I believe gave Branch Rickey the additional wherewithal that he needed to go get Jackie Robinson. So in some ways, the movement and the stars were starting to align. I think MacPhail understood that. This was, in essence, his last-ditch effort, as I like to say, to keep the Berlin Wall up. You know, (laughs) uh, the Berlin Wall was on on the verge of crumbling. And I think he realized this. And and he and others, they, they saw what was forthcoming. And MacPhail and Ricky, who had been friends for so long, became arch enemies. Mm. So anything that Ricky was advocating, you can rest assured that MacPhail was going to go against it. Yeah, it, it, they, they were feuding at, at a level that I, I think is of historic proportions, and, and they just did not like each other. And, you know, a lot of people had a mindset about Branch Ricky that he was uppity, that he thought he was smarter than everybody else. And, and so he rubbed a lot of people wrong along his journey, whether he was a righteous man or not. And, and so this movement now is growing. MacPhail is trying to do whatever he can. We've got to address this. We've got to do something about this. Meanwhile, Branch Rickey had already snuck and signed Monty Irvin a year prior to this letter, 1944. Hmm. And F. Manley fought him on this, and he backed off of Monty Irvin. That's when he eventually sets his sight on Kansas City and Jackie Robbins. Uh, uh-huh. okay. and, and, and so it, 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 this, this year's series of looking at the integrate man, it's got everything. It's filled with mystery and intrigue and backstabbing, a little bit of everything. It would be a perfect soap opera. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> Especially now we got all these these series shows that are 10 episodes. I mean, we could easily go back and put oh. this together on from letters like these to how it was, to how it happened, and, and, and still in half four or five seasons. Oh, you know, it would be a great Absolutely. Piece. Absolutely. And then what we also discuss is the quandary that the black press put black owners in. Because now the black press is pushing for integration of our game. And the black owners, if they resist this movement, well, the black community going to look at them like, well, why are y'all holding up? Why are you standing mm-hmm. in the way of progress? So again, MacPhail is right on point that black owners, this goes against their own business interest to right. see integration. Mm-hmm. So they are doubly over a barrel 
because in many ways they have to now acquiesce to what the black press and its agenda, because otherwise the African-American community is going to look at them side-eyed, like Mm -hmm. you all are in the way of progress. Mm -hmm. But as I shared with my friend Bill Roden, who gets to define what progress is? Right. Mm -hmm. What you thought it might be might be completely different. Yeah. You know, like... Like we look at vegetables, for example, we grow some, some of them grow up out of the ground, some grow into the ground. And we may walk past some potatoes and say, there's nothing there. And we got a whole bushel of potatoes underneath the ground. That's still progress. You know, and it's interesting, you mentioned the, the, the art of um, the, the editors and the writers saying things. When he, McPhail quotes Mr. Sam Lacey of the Sam Afro-American Lacey, newspaper. Mm-hmm. So these quotes, was he ever questioned about his comments on here, how he said he didn't think there would be a single man in the ranks at this time of this. And, this. and, and, and that's really interesting because Lacey, Wendell Smith, and other prominent African-American sports writers were staging tryouts for black ball players. You know, they were working underground to do this. And that passage really struck me because it seemed to go contrary to what mm-hmm. Sam Lacey had really written and, and I think wanted to try and accomplish. But it also speaks to me, too, a little bit of the sociological aspect of what segregation did to our community mm-hmm. because it made us believe in many realms that we were less than, that and we were aspiring to have what others had. You know, but when, you, when it's been basically beaten into you that what the other side has is better than what you have, now you see yourself in a, an entirely different light sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, did the Negro Leagues have its share of those who were not upstanding citizens? Of course it did. Mm-hmm. Just like almost any other sport league did. Yeah. Just <laughs> like the major leagues had. So mm-hmm. again, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a twisted mindset that Lacey shared there in that particular passage, which I don't think he truly believed. But again, this whole moniker of trying to define progress. What is mm-hmm. progress? It, it makes me think back to the fact that Buckle Neal and I used to get our hair cut in the same barbershop. <laughs> and, and Curtis, so one day I'm sitting in the chair and Mike, Mike, who owned the shop, uh, is still is a minister. And so Buck walks in, I'm sitting in the chair, and Mike says, Mr. O'Neill, you staying out of trouble? And Buck looks at me, he says, Rev, your kind of trouble might not be my kind of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so who gets to define progress? And, and throughout this episode, we look at how the black press and particularly viewed progress as assimilating to that culture, to Major League Baseball. Despite the impact that it was going to have on the African-American community, Mm -hmm. we lost a lot with the integration of this sport because we lost the Negro Leagues and we lost this driver, of this catalyst that sparked economic development. And to me, that's what makes this entire story so incredibly fascinating. 
And this letter is like the tip of the iceberg, you know, in terms of its content, all the underlying meanings that stem from what MacPhail was trying to convey. Now, do you know of, or do you think MacPhail knew that the only way this could possibly work, or one of the ways this should work, would be to have a Negro League team integrate or therefore a Negro League to join the quote-unquote organized baseball. Because I've heard people reference that, that Jackie was great, but it would have been amazing if the Kansas City Monarchs could have come (laughs) in as a whole. One, do you think that would have even been possible? And two, do you think that individuals and owners in the Negro Leagues would have wanted that? And do you think some of these white owners would have wanted that? And it's really interesting because this in particular speaks to the astuteness of Andrew Rube Foster. Yeah, who started the Negro Leagues, as you well know, in 1920. Mm -hmm. And Rube Foster, when he started the Negro Leagues, believed that he could create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to expand. So do exactly what you are suggesting, bring in, let's just say they would have brought in four of those original eight teams. And then you take the rest of the talent from those other four, and now you build the absolute strongest four teams that you can, and now they move in to Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. So under Foster's model, we would have had complete integration of our sport way back in the 1920s. Because not only would you have had black players, you'd have black owners, black Mm -hmm. managers, black coaches, traveling secretaries, team physicians, everything that we utilize today to fulfill the business. And that was Ruth Foster's thinking way back then. And as I remind people, if you want a more contemporary look at what Foster was thinking, all we have to do is look at the NFL and the merger between the AFL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's our Kansas City Chief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you look at the merger between the NBA and the old ABA. So, you know, the the Denver Nuggets, the Indiana Indiana Pacers. Well, now Mm -hmm. they're the Brooklyn Nets. Of course, they were formerly the New Jersey Nets, the San Antonio Mm -hmm. Spurs. You know, these were teams all from the ABA because what happened was the ABA emerged and started getting all the star players and you know, you're getting a Dr. J and he's mm-hmm. got the big fro and they break out the red, white, and blue basketball. They put down the three-point line. They introduced the slam dunk contest. Mm-hmm. And somebody said in the NBA, he said, oh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got to do something here. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's what Rube thought that he could do. And he was almost right. Yeah. Instead, Major League Baseball focused on the field instead of bringing those complete teams in, uh, it would have been interesting to see how the dynamics would have changed and the pool of talent, even if the major league team didn't want to sign the white, the black players. Right. This explicit pool of talent that would have been there to feed those four black teams that were there in major league baseball, if it was four, or even if it would have been eight. Right. Yeah. It would have been amazing to think about, say, those four teams go over there. They join into the, the major leagues at that time. They're all black. The other teams are all white. 
I started thinking about, okay, which team would integrate? Which would it be the four black teams integrating, bringing a white player in first? Would it be the white teams bringing in a black player first? And then let's not forget the players not from this country, the Latin players, the Asian players. Where would they have fit into this whole mix? It would have been amazing to see, but to your point, especially when we, we talk about ownership and management and field jobs and all those different jobs that are so on the decline at least as we speak right now, we would have, those numbers, if you mentioned four teams and four managers, we'd have more black managers then in the 1920s than we do right now. And that, yep. that, that's a, such an amazing thing to even think about. A hundred years later, what Rube Foster was thinking about that could have possibly happened still isn't there a hundred years later. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, it's pretty amazing. And I go back as this year, the museum, our contributions to the 75th anniversary of Jackie's breaking of the color barrier, Curtis, is going to be the release of a brand new traveling exhibition called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit will chronicle all of the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers. So we'll examine Jackie joining Brooklyn all the way through 12 years later, Elijah Pumsey Green being the last to complete the integration cycle with the Boston Red Sox in 1959. Well, Jackie's story has been well told. Or we have a place where we can go and learn his story. But Mm -hmm. the rest of those integration pioneers, their stories really have not been told. And so when I think about Jackie joining Brooklyn April 15, 1947, I again reflect to having talked to Buck O'Neill, who became the first black coach in Major League Baseball history in 1962, 15 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier, Buck breaks another barrier by becoming the first black coach. And and Curtis, the thing that he would relate to me was like, Bob, yes, I was very proud of being the first black coach. And it meant more money, maybe improved living conditions. But I could not stick out my chest because I'm the first black coach, because I knew all of these other great black minds who were more than capable of Mm -hmm. waving a guy home, you know, and and this was progress, as slow as it might have been. And, And so we get to examine that through this beautiful traveling exhibition that we're creating uh, that is slated to open at Dodger Stadium uh, on April 15th in time for Jackie Robinson Day. And on this program, this very program, Black Diamonds, last year, we made the case why Jackie Robinson was the right guy, as we say, to walk on the moon, mm-hmm. be the first <laughs> to break the color barrier. But then well, we also talk about why Larry Doby, who would follow Jackie just weeks later, and nobody remembers Larry Doby. Larry Doby has almost been an afterthought. It's only been over the last decade that we've started to finally pay proper attention to Larry Doby's pioneering role. Well, in essence, Larry Doby was our Buzz Aldrin, the second Mm -hmm. guy to walk on the moon. Nobody Mm -hmm. seems to remember that Buzz walked on the moon. Yeah, everybody (laughs) remembers Neil Armstrong. Yeah, Neil Mm -hmm. Armstrong, first man to walk on the moon. You hear that constantly. You never hear about Buzz Aldrin. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, a perfect parallel. And so we get to chronicle 
and celebrate all of baseball's integration pioneers because, as you well know, it didn't get any easier for Pomsey Green in Boston in 1959 than it did for Jackie in 1947. And so, as you all, the Player Alliance in particular, and you as someone who is so astute to this game, I was just showing someone the other day the cleats that you did. (laughs) For those who are listening, Curtis donated uh, a pair of cleats, one dedicated, number 42, Jackie Robinson, and the other, number 14, Larry Doby. And those cleats are on display in our Jackie Robinson. We call it Jackie Robinson Shrine here at the museum. So I know that Jackie meant something to you, And clearly, Larry Doby meant something to you. So now as we roll into 75 years since Jackie Robinson walked out on that field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, what does that mean to you as a former ball player, but also as the leader now of the Player Alliance? As a former ball player, Jackie meant that now I had an opportunity to play this game in my backyard, to play it on a team, and continue to play it for as long as I wanted to, as long as I chose to. I wasn't going to be restricted, and this is the top, and I had to go home because I wasn't allowed to go into that field. Jackie opened up all the gates for us as long as we wanted to put in the time, work, dedication to be able to do so. It also did that for myself, And all of my teammates that I've met from Japan, Korea, Mexico, Canada, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, the Netherlands, Curacao, just to name a few, because people forget that it wasn't just about Mm African-Americans. It was about any person of color and anyone that wasn't from here in the U.S. So this opened it up for all of us. This is why we have a World Baseball Classic now. This is why we have a futures game before where it was the U.S. versus the world. All that stems from Jackie. And then now being involved with the Players Alliance, our main goal and mission is to continue to push to make sure that if you want to play this game, it's available for you. There should never be a restriction that it's too, I can't afford it. It's not around me. It's not available for me. So we want to make sure that that's available. And we also realize that this game is hard. So you're not going to, we're not going to get a ton of Jackie Robinsons. We're not going to get a ton of all-stars, but we can have the next field manager, the next scout, the next trainer, the next field coach, the next front office manager, and all those jobs we have the aptitude for, we have the (laughs) capability for, we have the intelligence for. Those are all possibilities that, that the Players Alliance are trying to continue to break barriers for that Jackie had started for 75 years ago. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I am so excited about the work that the Player Alliance is doing in collaboration with both Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball's Players Association. And we certainly want to throw our name in the hat because for me, the history our place in this game becomes extremely important as we help young aspiring baseball players identify with themselves in this game. You know, you've been here multiple times. You know, that's the thing. You've always come. When you were playing, you always came. If the team came to Kansas City, you came to the Negro (laughs) League Baseball Museum. I'll never forget 
you bring in your father here to the Negro Leagues Baseball mm-hmm. Museum when we had the opportunity to honor you. And uh, you understand your place in this game. But do you recall what it felt like the first time you walked inside the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Ah, the first time I walked in, you enter that, uh, the, the, the four-year hallway area, and you have the Jazz uh-huh. Hall of Fame, which I still haven't been to. I still have to go there. I haven't, I haven't made that left. I've always made the right <laughs> <laughs> to come to the Negro League Baseball Museum. And you enter there, and you're, I, I don't know what is going to, to, to be the first thing I see, but there's that chicken wire in my face. And I'm going, okay, they got this chicken wire right here. And I see all this really neat stuff behind that chicken wire. How do I get over there? And I remember you, Bob, mentioning on my first tour there, we set this up because as a fan, this was the view you had. As a Black fan at that time frame, you viewed the game of some of the greats through chicken wire. You couldn't even just get a straight through shot. And that just set the tone as you start to work your way around and ultimately end up on that field with some of the best to ever play. And you see the size, the strength, the flexibility that those individuals have displayed in their statues. And you can only imagine what they were able to do and manipulate. I mean, I can't stretch and bend the way Satchel <laughs> Page can do it to this day. You know, the way uh, they, they, they would slide and move and maneuver their bodies and, and just, just do things that allowed them to be some of the best to ever do it is amazing to see and relive even for a short period of time. The unfortunate thing is there's a lot of, it, it highlights how good things are. And no matter how much you try to tell the negatives, we only get a glimpse of how bad it could have been for some of those individuals, for their families, for their teams, for the organizations, how they travel. You get glimpses of it. And I think that's the one part where no matter how many stories you tell it, because I'm living in right now. I can see 2020. I, I go to diverse schools. I live in a diverse neighborhood. I play on diverse teams. I can hear a story about how Jackie and his wife had to travel and end up in a hotel room full of bed bugs, and they had to put the newspaper down on the bed in order to sleep to get to the minor league team. And I, I still can't fathom it unless I was actually there. Yeah. And, and that's the part I, if, I don't know how it is, maybe with the technology you have where you can put on the VR glasses and you can look back in that time, we can really <laughs> drive that point home yeah. because for yeah. as great as it is, we also need to, we can't forget the, the, the struggles, the difficulties that they had to go to and still be the best to do it. You, you have, again, I'm going to, I'm going to go to here. McPhail talks about, there's no one that has the ability to do it. You have uh, Mr. Sam Lacey. If he did ha- indeed say this, that they couldn't put it all together. And then you get Jackie to not only come in, but win rookie of the year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 he walks into he walks into a locker room, Curtis, where he was likely the most intellectual being in that locker room. Mm. So again, as we talk about who could have been the first, and there were a number of players in the Negro Leagues who I think would have had every opportunity to succeed as being the first. 
But again, what we do know is that the first guy cannot fail. No. If the first guy fails, there is no second guy. Mm-hmm. And so Ricky, whatever his motivations may have been, he knew he had to get this right. And he rolled the dice on a ball player named Jack Roosevelt Robinson, who had only played a little bit of baseball professionally here in Kansas City in 1945. And he acquitted himself very well. Jackie was a tremendous athlete. So it didn't take him long to catch up. But the other side of the equation, and we talk about this, and I want to get your opinion on this. Jackie tries out for the Monarchs in Houston, Texas. He had written the Monarchs owner, James Leslie Wilkinson, and asked for a tryout. Hilton Smith, Hall of Fame pitcher for the Monarchs, had recommended Jackie to J.L. Wilkinson. And Wilkie tries him out because so many of the Monarchs star players were, well, serving in World War II, including Buck O'Neill and a guy named Willett Brown. And on one of the previous episodes of Black Diamonds, I had our good friend Dave Winfield on, and we talked about a guy named Ted Strong. Ted Strong was serving in the Navy. Ted Strong was Dave Winfield before we ever knew who Dave Winfield <laughs> was. Curtis Day, Ted Strong was 6'7", 230 pounds, played every position except for pitch and catch. He's a 6'7", shortstop, man. And, wow. and, <laughs> and had speed, power, great arm. There were a lot of people who thought that Ted Strong could have been, if we were just basing it on talent, that Ted Strong could have been the guy to break the color barrier. Ted Strong had some other personal demons that likely would have made him the wrong candidate, unfortunately. But when Ted Strong wasn't playing for the Monarch, Ted Strong was a star player for the Harlem Globetrotters. Mm. So that's the kind of athlete we're talking about. Willett Brown, who is in the Hall of Fame, and Josh Gibson nicknamed him Home Run Brown. So now you know if Gibson nicknamed you Home Run (laughs) Brown, you must got some power. And, Mm -hmm. And Willett Brown was a dynamic outfielder He was serving in the Army. Hank Thompson, who we talk about in Barrier Breakers, holds the distinction of being the only player to integrate two two major league teams and the the first to play in both the National and the American League. Hank Thompson would integrate the St. Louis Browns and the New York Giants. Okay, I didn't know that one. He was serving in the Army. So really, if the Monarchs have their full roster in place, it is highly unlikely that Jackie would ever get invited to try out for the Monarchs. Right. And how would history have been altered? But little did J.L. Wilkinson know when he signed Jackie Robinson, he had just signed the man that was going to put him out of business because by the end of 1945, Jackie was gone. Mm -hmm. And he met with Branch Rickey. They orchestrated the move to bring him into... Uh, Major League Baseball to break Major League Baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. And that was the beginning of the end of the Negro Leagues. Mm -hmm. Because now as this door had cracked open and as more black and brown talent started to flow, it wasn't a matter of if. It was simply a matter of when. So MacPhail was right on that account. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And... Now we're watching these players move into the major leagues. What happens to our fan base? They move to the major leagues. 
Yeah, they, they moved to the Middle East. They had, to pull, they had to pull that chicken wire down eventually. They pulled mm-hmm. it down because the chicken wire, folks, we utilize it here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to separate our visitors from the field of legends, which Curtis so beautifully described. And because chicken wire was used as a separating mechanism, if black fans were allowed in to watch a major league game, that's how we were separated. So now black fans are filling up the isolated black only section of these ballparks to go see Jackie, to go see Larry. And eventually the baseball minds there, these owners started to realize, wait, wait a minute. We better expand this section and allow these folks (laughs) folks to come in here. We losing money. Mm -hmm. But as Monty Irvin would say, the minute that Jackie Robinson took the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Newark Eagles were never the same. Those fans who came to see them left to go see Jackie. And it spelled the end of the Negro Leagues. And it also spelled the demise of many African-American communities. And so it goes back to what we talk about, progress, and whose definition Mm -hmm. of progress do we adhere to? And it comes at a cost. And for Black businesses, they paid a dear cost for what was deemed progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a tough part because, you know, I'm also looking here at what McPhail said and I never questioned this side of it, but all the players, including Jackie, were under contract. Correct? Yes. So if if Ranch Ricky comes in with this interest, how, how do you, I guess, strike that deal? How do the Kansas City Monarchs agree to that deal? And why why did they choose to do the deal? Why, why didn't they just say no? And I'm glad you brought that question up. And we'll have a broader conversation about J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarch, one of the great owners in baseball history. Well, Branch Rickey Curtis literally took Jackie Robinson away from the mm. Kansas City Monarch. Okay. Yeah. And, and so Branch Rickey, Branch Rickey had a level of diabolicalness in him. There's no question about this. Right. His idea and plan was to go into the Negro Leagues and basically raid it of his talent without compensation to his owners. He was basically dismissing any contract that they may have had as not being legally binding. And so he comes in. Now, Effa Manley was going to fight him over Monty Irvin, and he backed off because he didn't need a fight. He didn't need a fight. He didn't need the other owners to know what he's up to because they're going to stand in solidarity to try and block him. He turns his sight here to Kansas City and won Jackie Robinson. And after they scouted Jackie and figured out that, okay, Jackie can play, he comes in and he basically takes Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. But the Monarchs owner, J.L. Wilkinson, couldn't fight back. You know why? Hmm. Because Wilkie was white. Yeah, Wilkie was white. So you Uh. can imagine this now. If this white man is the one that stands up and publicly blocks what we had been waiting for. Every black person in America had been waiting for a black man to play in the major league. So if it's this white man that is the guy who is pegged as the one that blocked this from happening, and now you've made your entire living in black baseball, as Wilkie did, with owning Mm -hmm. the great Kansas Monarch, 
that black fan base that had been so loyal, uh, <laughs> man, they were going to turn their back right away on it. Yeah. And, and, and so Wilkie was caught in that, perver- between that proverbial rock and a hard place because he mm-hmm. was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. So publicly, he said all the right things. Privately, he's seething. But he's not seething because a black man is about to play in the major leagues. This black man that you're about to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And he sold his interest to his business partner, a guy named T.Y. Baird, the year after Jackie takes the field with the Dodgers, 1948. And this thing is even more interesting. We'll dive a little deeper (laughs) into this later on. T.Y. Baird, y'all, was a known Kansas City, Kansas Ku Klux Klansman. No. (laughs) I tell people all the time, (laughs) you cannot make this stuff up. It's good. And so, because Wilkie was white, and this is my own belief, because Wilkie was white, he could not stand in the way, and not only was he white, he was white who had made his living in black baseball, he couldn't stand in the way and prevent this black man from having an opportunity to move to the major league because it would have destroyed his business one way or the other. Or the other, right. And he bowed out gracefully after that. Wow. And then, and then decided to sell it to a Ku Klux Klan <laughs> member. Wow. Wow. Every yeah, time I, I talk you, to you, Bob, I mean, yeah, no, wow. You can't make this stuff up, man. You can't make wow. it up. It's too man. good. I told you I was going to have a lot of wows. We keep, we keep saying it, you know. <laughs> we try to get into a spot where we don't repeat the same words, but I, but I got nothing else to describe all the different layers on just this moment. Just this moment. And we're not talking about the other 29, well, there weren't 30 clubs at that time, but all the clubs got It was 16 at that time, but yeah. And and so they were all having to make a decision now if they're going to go out and sign this black talent. Mm -hmm. And what we found out was that the National League was far more aggressive than the American League. The American League, man, and of course the Yankees were part of, of, of the American League, and they were totally slow. They resisted this as long as they possibly could. Wow. And what we saw was the shift of power start to occur because of the aggressiveness, uh, the aggressiveness of the National League who started to identify this young, dynamic black star power. But now the Negro Leagues got to try to develop and sell. That's what you had to do now, develop and mm-hmm. sell because your business is going to die. Your business is going to die. So that's how you ultimately get a young Ernie Banks. You get a young Henry Aaron a young Willie Mays, all leave the Negro Leagues. Man, and those teams paid pittances for those players who were worth uh, $100,000 or more at that time. Lots of money. Hall of Fame talent that they got for pennies on the dollar because the Negro Leagues basically had a fire sale and they had to get whatever they could get before the business of black baseball died. Uh, and that goes to the point that you mentioned, not only black baseball, the black community, those vendors, those where those teams played, where those players were housed, where those players called home, were possibly going to live. All that stuff was affected by it. Tremendously. Wow. And that is, as we say, the byproduct of progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it comes at a cost. Mr. Yeah. Curtis Grandison. I want to thank you, man, for being on Black Diamonds. I can't wait to see you in person sometime soon. We're looking forward to having you back here at the museum, and we look forward to working with you and the Player Alliance 
on this incredibly needed and important effort to bring Black folks back to this game. Thank you, Absolutely. my friend. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And again, I'm always learning something when I get a chance to talk to you from this letter to just hearing you speak. So just breaking down more of these layers. Is it anytime I get a chance to, to just be with you and listen to you, I, I love it. So you just let me know. I am there. You got it, brother. See you, man. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Yes, sir. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.